Welcome to Waterbrook Church, located in Victoria, Minnesota. Glorious Disruption is about when Jesus shows up and turns everyone's world upside down. We believe this study of God's Word is about to turn many people's lives completely around. It may be even upside down because that's what happens in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus comes to people who are absolutely stunned and amazed by Him, and they are profoundly and gloriously changed forever. Let's begin by praying that this happens here at Waterbrook and beyond for our joy and amazement in Jesus. Let's worship together. Well, good morning, everyone. I liked uh, the line in Paul's uh, prayer this morning, incubators of hope. That one stuck with me as he was uh, praying for us. Wouldn't that be our desire that Waterbrook as a church in our community and in our culture would be an incubator of hope? And it's the kind of hope um, that gives people a stubborn resilience against the darkness. Um, even, even as we've been singing this morning and as we're coming into the text of Scripture, what we're seeking to be and what we're seeking to do is to give you a vocabulary and conviction by which you can stand up against the night. And you and I know that it is really easy in a broken and a negative and a sinful world where evil is in your face all the time to begin to allow the enemy to build a lie into your thinking that you just wonder when the next catastrophe is around the, the corner. Um, that you are um, doing your best, but the, the next step is likely to be disappointment and failure in your lives. And so that's the danger with the enemy. The enemy will take evil, and evil is evil, and it comes in so many forms. In the text we're studying today, evil comes against Jesus for the purpose of executing him on a Roman cross. And the evil comes in the systemic corruption of the religious establishment of his day. And Jesus has already been bemoaning the religious leaders. They are um, neglectful. They take advantage of the widows. They've turned the house of God into a den of thieves. And as Jesus has grieved over the religious establishment, now they come up against him. Not only do they come against him, but they come in the power of Satan. I don't know if you've ever had a moment in your life where the reality of evil has been impressed upon you. And I imagine for some of you, when I speak about Satan and evil as a reality, you will go to a moment in your life where it became palpably clear this is evil. And I've had those moments in my life where I just realized there's more going on here than just a human struggle. There is evil at work. And so here we have evil, we have a, a corrupt religious establishment, and we have a close friend of Jesus betraying him. And, and probably most of us, if not all of us, know what that's like as well. Just a, a grave, heart-wrenching disappointment that someone near to you and dear to you has injured you in a way that you were just not prepared for. And when we come to the message of the gospel and we sing about Easter and we get ready to declare the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you and I need to have an awareness that when we've experienced evil and betrayal and opposition in our lives, Jesus has experienced that, 
and triumphed over it. But the enemy wants to sow the seed of cynicism and unbelief in you so that you constantly have this thought, the narrative in your head, that this is going to happen again real soon. So I dare not risk entering into relationship with people, or I dare not imagine that somehow I can overcome this battle of sin in my life, right? That's a lie that uh, keeps coming up in your life. If you've had any sort of trauma in your life, one of the things that trauma does is it recycles back a narrative of failure, a narrative of betrayal, a, nar- a, uh, uh, a narrative of insecurity in your life. My dear friends, Easter is the opposite of that. And that's why we sing this morning, the resurrected Christ is resurrecting me. Because the battle that we are fighting in our lives to not pull back and not withdraw and not hide ourselves and disengage, which we are all tempted to do at times, is the fact not that we somehow can bolster ourselves by some internal strength, but we have someone who's already won the victory and he's fighting on our behalf. And, and we can go down, but this is the truth. For every Christian, when you fall, you will not fall headlong. He holds you with his righteous right hand and he will lift you up again. And my resurrected, the resurrected king is resurrecting me. Isn't that great news? Amen. But I tell you, we gotta sing it and we gotta say it and we gotta see it. And that's, that's what we need to see here. So I, I'm gonna pause for a moment because I want to really and sincerely pause and ask you this question. What is the narrative that gets the loudest voice in your life? Just, just think about that. If you're battling sin as a Christian, what's, what's the narrative? If you come out of broken relationships, what's the dominant narrative, the storyline that feeds into your thinking and determines your peace, determines your fears and anxieties, determines your engagement. What's, what's the narrative on those tired days, those hard days? What's the narrative if, if you've been in the church and it's not been good? What, what are you waiting? What's the shoe you're waiting to, to see fall? Do you understand the danger of having a non-gospel narrative? directing your lives. Do you understand that Satan loves to feed that narrative? Amen. And we have to fight for the narrative of the gospel. Amen. I'm going to ask you to pray with me. And it's a simple prayer. God, change the narrative with the gospel. Use Easter to change the narrative of triumph over sin, victory over death, and hope of everlasting life. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, We sing with great joy of the resurrected King who has conquered sin and death. But there are moments in our lives, dear God, where it feels like the power belongs to Satan, not Jesus. There's a lie in our head which says failure is inevitable and hope be dashed. But Father, the truest story, the greatest narrative is of Jesus Christ conquering sin and death. Defeating Satan with Satan's own trickery. And I pray, dear God, that you would help each of us 
be set free, to live freely for Jesus Christ and the kingdom and to engage with joy and with hope and expectancy because we believe the greatest narrative of our lives is the resurrected king is resurrecting me. Make it so. We can't do it. We need you, Holy Spirit. Make it so for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to share you uh, a short sentence that came from um, Pastor Chad Scruggs this last week. Um, he didn't say much from the family after uh, his, their nine-year-old daughter, Haley, who was shot and killed at the Covenant School in Nashville. But listen to this simple line. Sometimes it's the line, the only line you can hold on to. when you have not only encountered the greatest heartache of your life, but the greatest evil of your life, most likely. Listen to what he said. Through tears, we trust that she is in the arms of Jesus who will raise her to life once again. When you face evil and you experience it, not theoretically, not conceptually, but in the, in the real Rubber meets the road, day-to-day grind of life. When you encounter suffering and evil, this is when the narrative of the gospel, the power of the resurrection, has to be the truest narrative of your life. It is the only thing sometimes you can hold on to. And there is an enemy who comes along and wants to tell you that evil has won the day and hope is dashed and the future is not good and not promising for us, but we have a greater narrative. We have a greater story, a true story that sets us free. This morning I want to say that what you believe about God in the face of evil will not only affect how you process suffering when it happens, but how you will live your life for his kingdom in a world of dangers and devils. You understand that? We need to believe in the resurrection, the message of the resurrection, when we're going through suffering, because sometimes it's the only thing that will help us. But we also need it when we go out into a world, because if you do not believe that Christ defeated sin, Satan, and death, then you will not engage the world with hope and expectancy. You'll hold back, you'll withdraw, you'll sit on the sidelines and say, I can't do it. Of course you can't do it, but he can do it through you. And he can do it in you. It was what enabled Martin Luther to write these famous lines in the midst of the Protestant Reformation when he was facing corruption within the religious establishment. And it wasn't simply, that's the, that's the, that's the complexity. Nothing's really just simple and clear. That there are doctrinal issues that he was standing for, justification, righteousness by faith alone. But at the same time, he was dealing with a corrupt system, betrayal, threats. And when you've got all of that going on, listen to what he says. And though this world with, devil filled, devil, with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. Why? For God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The resurrected king is resurrecting me. That's what's being said here. Luther says it could be, the world could be full of devils and dangers, but there's a greater truth, a greater one. God is greater. There, Satan and God are not equals. 
We don't believe in dualism. Satan is a creature, evil, wicked, but God is God. And he may think he reigns, but he has fallen because Christ reigns. The narrative of the Bible tells us this, that though evil exists, God is good. And God will work things. Remember in the book of Genesis, the Bible begins with this long story of the life of Joseph. And Joseph stands as a foreshadow of Jesus, who is the greater Joseph. And in the life of Joseph, he suffers betrayal, lies, promises not kept, threats of murder from his closest family members. The people he should have trusted, like many of you, turned on him. And at the end of the book of Genesis, when Jacob dies and Joseph's brothers come to him, they're, they're deathly afraid that he is going to enact revenge against them. But listen to the words of Joseph. He says to his brothers, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. But what? God meant it for good. Why? To bring about that many should be kept alive as they are today. Isn't that the gospel? Satan means it for evil. The religious leaders mean it for evil. Judas means it for evil. God means it for good. That through the crucifixion, Jesus would actually triumph and defeat the, the purposes of those who were seeking to undermine him. This morning, we're going to talk about this fact. God uses evil to destroy evil. Yes. I want you to hear that this morning. In Luke's gospel, as we're introduced to Judas and the chief priests and Satan, as Satan is, functions a lot in, in, in Luke chapter 22, as we look at all those things, you and I need to see that as they are coming together, conspiring against Jesus, they will end up defeating themselves. Jesus will end up defeating them, using their very evil against them. John Piper says this in Spectacular Sins. He said, God did not just overcome evil at the cross. He made evil serve the overcoming of evil. He made evil commit suicide in doing its worst evil. When Satan succeeded in the crucifixion of Jesus, Satan was undone himself. Isn't that good news? That's great news. So you and I are meant to look at, at the Gospel of Luke and watch the trajectory of what's going on and realize this is not chaos. This is not evil ru ruling the day. This is this verse, John three sixteen. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God is on the move. And Satan will fall. So we have every assurance that because Jesus triumphed over his enemies at the cross and defeated evil using evil, even when we don't know why evil is happening, we can be sure that God will use evil and suffering in our lives through Christ to, dis de to destroy evil and suffering and bring good. And I'm saying this, you will not understand evil, but you can understand God. You might not have answers here, but you can know this for sure, that God will always use evil to destroy evil eventually and rescue us through Jesus Christ. So let's look at this text of Scripture. I want to point out this um, passage and, and make several points for you that I hope will change the narrative through the Easter story. Here's the first thing. God sovereignly ordained the subversion of Jesus by the religious leaders. 
It's really clear in Luke's gospel and in the book of Acts and in the gospel of uh, John. God sovereignly ordained the subversion of Jesus by the religious leaders. Easter is the story of how God used the evil of the religious leaders to end the priesthood of the religious leaders and to make Jesus our high priest forever. Do you understand what's going on? What happens is these religious priests move against Jesus, trying to bring Jesus down. At the end of this, they are no more. 70 AD, the temple's gone like Jesus prophesied. The priests no longer have their power, but we have a priest at the right hand of the Father, ever living to intercede for us. Their corrupt priesthood resulted in a perfect priesthood on our behalf forevermore praise God so look at verse 20 uh, chapter 22 1 and 2 now the feast of unleavened bread drew near which is called the Passover and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death for they feared the people so there's a, a bit of a difficulty a complexity here because as they come to the week of the Passover which in God's purposes is not accidental because all the people of Israel are bringing their Passover lamb for the sacrifice. God is bringing his Paschal lamb. John the Baptist said, Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so while they're bringing their Passover lambs, he's bringing the final Passover lamb who would take away all our sins. And so as they're coming together, one of the problems they have, Jesus has now said Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. Jesus has said to them the temple is going to be torn down. He has told them that they are, uh, they've turned the, the, the temple, the house of God, into a den of thieves, and he's flipping over tables. They've had enough. But the problem is Jesus is immensely popular. And so now they're plotting, how do we get Jesus without causing a riot, and in causing a riot, bring the Roman rulers in to settle it and take our country away from us, take our authority away from us. They need somebody on the inside. They don't know. They don't have like street lights like we have now. So in the daylight, Jesus is traveling from the Mount of Olives, and he's going into Jerusalem, and he's teaching in the temple, but it gets dark at night, and as the crowds, all these people are moving about, it's hard to know where he is and where they can arrest him. And uh, Jesus would go out into the Mount of Olives. Uh, Marianne and I were in um, Menton, France last summer, and uh, one of the places I wanted to go while we were in Menton was an olive grove where Charles Spurgeon used to go all the time, and Spurgeon would go and meet um, uh, other, le- other leaders there and uh, pray and talk. And, and so when we got to Menton, you can look up the hill. It's on the edge of the French Alps. And as I looked up the hill, I could clearly see where the olive grove was, where Spurgeon would go. And so we, uh, we hiked up there. And when we got up there, you realize that these olive trees sort of hung, and they, were, they provided a canopy, but when you're in the middle of them, you know, you just can't see very far. There'd be families picnicking here and over there, but making your way in the dark without any light in there would have been impossible to find someone. They needed someone to guide them into this grove. Spurgeon liked to go there because he thought it reminded him of the Mount of Olives where Jesus was praying at before he came to the cross. And so that's what's going on. How do we find someone that would betray him? And so they get together. There's a kind of a strange gathering of the chief priests who are largely Sadducees, more the liberal theologians who deny the resurrection, only believe in the law, in the Pentateuch. They're struggling with, uh, normally struggling with the Pharisees and the scribes, but suddenly 
You know, war makes strange bedfellows and suddenly they're partnering because Jesus is a problem that needs to be dealt with. I want you to take your Bibles and go to the Gospel of John. I'm going to go here a couple of times this morning because I'd like you to see what's going on from the Word of God. Put some flesh on what's going on here. But in John chapter 11, verse 45, we actually see in the text what that meeting was when they were conspiring to get rid of Jesus. John chapter 11. I'm going to begin at 45 and read down. It says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he, had, what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the Sanhedrin and said, What? are we to do for this man performs many signs if we let him go on like this everyone will believe in him and the romans will come and take away both our place and our nation isn't that an interesting uh statement they actually know jesus is doing miracles they actually see the response of people believing in him and despite the fact the evidence of who he is is right in front of their face they can't get away from their addiction to power They can't get away from their possession of power and authority. They have made it all about them. And so it says in verse 49, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Isn't that a great guy? These are, this this is how he's team building. (laughs) You idiots. You have no idea what's going on here. And he says to them, it is Do you not understand, verse 50, it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this. Listen to this. That's why I want you to hear this today. He did not say this of his own accord. The reason I want you to hear that is who's in charge here? So here's the chief priest saying, don't you know it would be better for one man to die for the whole nation? And And John writes this, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. The, The chief priest, Caiaphas, stands up and preaches the gospel. Because he's the chief priest, God, by the power of the Spirit, makes Caiaphas say, isn't it better that he die, one man die for the whole nation? What did Jesus do? Jesus Christ went to the cross and died for the new Israel, for all the nations who would come and be the people of God. Not only the nation of Israel who would come to him by faith, but the nations who were scattered abroad would come to him. He preaches the gospel under the power of of God. You and I need to see that even when they're plotting against Jesus, even when these religious leaders are seeking to bring Jesus down, the subversion ends up advancing the purpose of God. Let me go back to the Gospel of Luke and then just remind you of passages of Scripture there. Because Jesus has been saying this all the way along. When, when this little meeting happens in chapter 22, Jesus has been telling them this is what's going to happen. In chapter, 20, uh, chapter 9, verse 22, This is what Luke writes. He says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by who? The chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. 
says the same thing similar in Luke 9, 44. He says in Luke 18, 31 to 34, and taking the 12, he said to them, see, we're going up to Jerusalem. Everything that's written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Let's just pause there. Last couple of weeks, um, Gabe has been, well, last while, Gabe's been walking in our focus group on how to study the Bible. And a large part of what we were doing was going through the Old Testament and seeing Jesus. And where the Old Testament pointed to Jesus Christ. And he's saying, you know this betrayal by the leaders? Do you know this prophecy of him dying? This has been in the scriptures all the way along. And so Jesus stands up and says, this is what's going on. It's exactly what they said. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. After flogging him, they will kill him on the third day and he will rise. They understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them and they did not grasp what was said. I'm just going to stop there and just go, have you ever just thought about Jesus being flogged? The whip with the bone pieces that when his body was thrashed, it would lodge in and rip the sinews from his bones and tear his skin. And Jesus is here beforehand fully aware. Isn't it a marvel that he knew what was going on and he kept on going for you? He knew what he was facing and he did not stop. He was not unaware and ignorant. This wasn't evil. Somehow a plot coming together and Jesus trying to escape it. Jesus said, these men were doing what God had sovereignly planned. God had purpose in order to save us. When Luke writes his next book in the book of, uh, the, the, the book of Acts and he begins to the Holy Spirit comes and is poured out upon the disciples and the disciples begin to preach, they very clearly announce that what happened to Jesus in Jerusalem at the hands of the religious leaders was predestined by God, was purposed by God. Peter's very first sermon sounds that way. Listen to Acts 2, 23 at Pentecost. This Jesus delivered up according to what? The definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Isn't that marvelous? He stands up and says, this one you killed? God was sovereignly ordaining it. This was the plan of God. The religious leaders were doing evil, and in doing evil, they were accomplishing the death of their plan. <laughs> To get rid of Jesus. They were not going to get rid of Jesus. They were going to assure that he would be a high priest forever. According to the order of Melchizedek, the writer of Hebrews says. Acts 4, 24, 28. Sovereign Lord. Here they are. They're praying because they're being threatened. And this is why I say you need to have this narrative in your life. Because when you're threatened, you need to pray like this. You need to look back and see God was sovereign over the evil that was done against Jesus. They pray, Sovereign Lord, who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them, for this little later, for truly in this city there was gathered against your holy servant whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your plan had predestined to take place. Could it be more clear? Are they acting willfully? Is this evil of the religious leaders? Yes. But as they're doing evil, God is coming to destroy evil. 
And he does it as they execute Jesus, and in Jesus, their priesthood ends, and a new priesthood arrives. Can I describe, just show you in Hebrews what this new priesthood is, what it's like? Listen to Hebrews 7. It's repeated in different ways in the letter to the Hebrews, but in Hebrews 7, 26 to 28, it says, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, a holy, innocent unstained, separate from sinners, exalted above the heaven. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered himself up. The law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. I love that. So, So let me just say this to you. If you have suffered evil at the hands of religious leaders. Thank God we have a religious leader who is perfect, spotless, blameless. What will engage you is not guarding yourself against the expectation that somehow you're going to get into that perfect church with the perfect leadership. My dear friends, run, right? Run if that's what you're looking for. You need a church where the leaders join and come alongside you and say there is only one high priest that we can trust in. Right? And where Gabe gets up and sings with tears and talks about Judas' betrayal. And he points. And when John comes up and gives the welcome and points to the gospel, he's not pointing it theoretically. He's pointing out of desperation. My dear friends, unless the Lord builds a house, our labor's in vain. Right? We desperately need one priest, one king, and one leader. The Old Testament, Deuteronomy 28, God promised the people of Israel, he said to them, a part of his blessing to Moses, they followed God and they were faithful to God. Listen to what he says, the Lord will cause your enemies to rise up against you. Now if I stop there, that doesn't sound too good. But listen to what he says, the Lord will cause your enemies to rise up against you for what purpose? to be defeated before you. That's what God was doing at the cross on the week of the Passover, on the seven days of the the celebration on leavened bread. He was allowing the enemies of God to rise up against him so they might be defeated before him. And they were defeated, these corrupt leaders. God not only sovereignly ordained the subversion of Jesus by the priests, but he did it by Satan as well. Easter is the story of how God used the destructive and evil scheme of Satan in order that through Jesus' death and resurrection, Jesus might completely destroy the works of the devil over us. Isn't it amazing that Satan fell and was defeated by doing what he thought would give him victory? destroying Jesus Christ. I'm going to give you a verse here. I'll come back to it in a a moment. But in this verse, this is an explanation from John in his epistle, his first epistle. 1 John 3 says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to do what? To destroy the works of the devil. He came to take away Satan's power and his authority and his effect upon our lives. Now how does he do this? Well, Satan, it says in Luke chapter 22, verse 3, it says, Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. Now, as he comes in and does his work, you'll see this regularly in Luke 22. Satan shows up. He'll show up later on when Judas shows up in the garden and kisses Jesus and betrays him. 
It's an interesting passage. I want you to look at Luke 22, verse 31, where Jesus talks to Simon Peter and says something to Simon Peter about Satan's request or demand before God. In Luke 22, verse 31, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Now it's interesting. Can Satan just do with Simon what he wants? No. He's demanded that he might sift Satan, but listen, uh, Simon. But listen, he says, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. It's an interesting passage. That rooster will crow three times. Peter will be devastated. But God is still sovereign. Satan is not sovereign. He's very sinister. But Satan is not sovereign. God is. And what's going on in this passage of Scripture is that God will allow for the purpose of the cross Peter to fall into his own sin. But he won't let him fall headlong. He won't let him go completely. He will rescue him. Do you remember the book of Job? In the book of Job, Job, Satan comes into heaven and has a discussion with God. And Satan just can't go and do as he pleases. In Job's writing, it says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord, saying, From going to and fro on the earth, walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? And there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job Fear God for no reason. Haven't you put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands. His possessions have increased in the land. But you stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, he'll curse you to his face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch your hand. So Satan went out. Satan can do nothing except what God permits him to do. And when Satan goes out against Jesus, when Satan tempts Simon Peter and comes along, I like a um, passage of scripture where, uh, or a commentary by Sinclair Ferguson where he describes what goes on. He says, God had acceded to the demand when, when Simon, uh, Satan asked to sift Simon. He says, God acceded to the demand because God had his own purposes. Satan prayed on Peter. Jesus prayed for Peter. When you have been restored back into ministry. Isn't that great? Because God is going to do something in Satan's work in Simon Peter that will break something inside him, Peter, that will better fit him for the ministry of the gospel. He will be changed as a result of it. God is not evil, but God is sovereign over it. And so when God works for our good through the agency of evil, sometimes we don't know why he's doing what he's doing. But we can know this, that God only uses evil against his people in order to destroy evil in his people, mm. around his people. So let me just go back and give you a couple of, of points just so you can say, okay, how does God use Satan to defeat Satan's work uh, in the world by, by having him go against Jesus in this way? Number one, when Satan incites Jesus' crucifixion, God uses Satan to destroy Satan's accusations. Uh, Gabe read earlier, the worship team read from Revelation chapter 12. 
Revelation chapter 12 calls Satan the accuser of the brethren that's what he does he accuses now he falls and his accusations have fallen that's why Romans 8 says who will bring any charge against God's elect it's God who justifies what God says stands it's Christ Jesus who died and rose again isn't that marvelous and encouraging to us he brings in the gospel Satan wants to bring us down he wants to condemn us he wants to condemn Christ but by Christ being crucified he dies for our sins so every time Satan sticks his finger in your face and says you lousy sinner you look at him and say I have a great savior Satan get behind me right you can say that when Satan we sing the song when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. Upward I look and see him there, who's made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. He took down the accusations of Satan. He took down the dominion in Satan. That's what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 2 to 5. He said, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, made you alive in Christ Jesus. Is that a marvelous truth? This is a great blessing. God destroyed Satan's dominion. Satan no longer has authority over you. Christ has bought you with his blood. You are no longer yours. You are his. You're no longer Satan's. He has no claim on you. Satan has not only had his dominion but his intimidation in in hebrews chapter 2 we're told that satan jesus became like us in the flesh that he might render him powerless him who had the power of death that is the as satan and satan loves to keep us he says in the fear of death satan likes to whisper in your ear catastrophe catastrophe calamity calamity this is never going to work out he sings the somber song of death over all of our lives But my dear friends, we have at the right hand a merciful and faithful high priest in Jesus Christ who ever lives and intercedes for us. And he, at the right hand of God, says silence to Satan. They are mine and I will never let them go. And he has been tested and tempted in every way but never brought into sin. And he has covered us with his righteousness. My dear friends, when you think I can never fight another fight, you just need to look up to heaven. The crucified and risen Savior is pleading on your behalf. It is not in your strength, but in the strength of the Lord you fight the battle. He will never let you go. When Satan incites Jesus' crucifixion, God uses Satan to destroy Satan's powerful temptations towards us. What I mean by that, if you look at this text of Scripture that I mentioned earlier, in 1 John 3, John writes, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil's been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. He cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. Christ died for sin so that you might be born again with a new nature. Union with Jesus Christ in his death. Paul argues this in Romans 6. Do you not know that you've been crucified with Christ? right? And you've been raised with him. You are not what you once were. So you feel like, can I 
fight sin? Can I overcome sin? Here's the reality. You are a new creature, and it is fundamentally against your new disposition to carry on in sin. Can you sin? Yes. But can you stay sinning all the way to hell? Absolutely not. You've been born again in Jesus Christ. True. That's what's going on. Amen. God allows Satan to destroy Satan's authority, power, conviction, temptations in the victory of Jesus Christ at the cross. That's what Easter is about. Finally and lastly, God sovereignly ordained the subversion of Jesus by Judas. This is one of the heart-wrenching ones. I'm going to ask you to go to the Gospel of John, chapter 13. This is where uh, we see it. Here Judas betrays Jesus. And yet Jesus, as Gabe was saying already, here's Jesus washing Judas' feet. Now, why does God allow Judas to betray Jesus? Why does God work through this? Because God is taking Judas's awful, ugly betrayal to his friend and Lord, the king he's been following, Jesus, in order that we might have in Jesus' death a friend that stays closer than a brother. A friend who will never betray you. I want to tell you this, friends. You may have been betrayed in your life, but we have a brother who will never betray us. You might have been let down by the most important people in your life, but I'll tell you this one. He will never let you down. How do you know it? Because he went all the way to the cross. Listen to John 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father. I'm just going to stop and remind you. Do you understand what that says? Jesus knows what's going on. It's his hour. Earlier in John's gospel, they couldn't arrest him because it wasn't his hour. Now it's his hour. Sovereignly purposed by God to save sinners. When Jesus knew that his hour had come to part of this world, having loved his own who were in the world, listen to this, he loved them how far? Put that over your life. You can take that, put it on every plaque in your house. Put it on the dashboard. Put it on the mirror. He loved them to the end. So he gets down and he washes Judas' feet. Now go down to verse 21. And saying these things, Judas was troubled, or Jesus was troubled in his spirit. And he said, truly, truly, I say to you, one will betray me. And the disciples looked at each other. You realize how shocked they were, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, John, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side, so Simon gives him a signal, motions to him, and asks him of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will, dip, I, I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what, are you go what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one knew at the table knew why Jesus had said this to him. Jesus did. Some thought that maybe because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, go buy what we need for the feast. Or that he should give, him, give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. 
Jesus knew what was going on. Jesus knew what Judas was doing. Jesus could have stopped him. Jesus could have easily stopped him. Jesus didn't stop him because he was going to love his disciples, his friends, to the very end. A couple chapters in John chapter 15, he'll say, no greater love can a man show than this than he laid down his life for his friends. Can I tell you something? My dear friends, Jesus allowed Satan. He allowed the priests. He was sovereign. God was sovereign over Judas' betrayal because he knew as they came together to destructively act against him, he would destroy their evil acts, their manipulations, their, mis- their abuse of power, and that he would destroy the alienation that caused this kind of sin, and he would be the best friend any of us could have forevermore who interceded for us and, and forgives our sins. And you can take that home with you today. I really do want to stop and say this to you. You are meant to watch God's sovereignty over Jesus' life, over the evil against Jesus, and see Jesus use evil to destroy evil. To get this message, he will, just, he will use the suffering and evil in your life to destroy, ultimately, suffering evil's power over your life. Not in a redemptive way. Jesus has already done that. But ultimately, one day, we will see he has set us free. He has used it all, and nothing can stand against us. If God is for us, who can be against us? It's Easter week. You can know this if you came in discouraged today. The resurrected Christ, absolutely 100%, is resurrecting me. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we just bow our heads today. I, I ask that you would change the narrative that many of us have. Some of us have a narrative of of disillusionment that just keeps us paralyzed or keeps us apart from other people. Some of us have a narrative of evil and suffering, dear God, that we just expect that the next day is going to turn out as a catastrophe. We think the end of the story, sometimes in our honest moments, can only be hopeless. But Heavenly Father, I thank you that you sent your Son into the world and made him the victor over all things so that we might know victory in Jesus. So help us, dear God, to remember and to apply this narrative, the truest story, to our lives so that we might be free. We pray this in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you were able to seek, savor, and share the all-surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to find out more about our church, submit a prayer request, watch previous sermons, Go to www.waterbrook.church. Have a blessed week.